So uh, at, at different times uh, in my life, I've had the opportunity, some of you know this about me, to coach. At different times, I got to coach basketball. Uh, that's been my favorite sport since I was a kid. And so I've gotten to coach high school basketball, my kids' teams, and different things. But through the years, getting uh, that opportunity to coach, uh, one of the things that I've learned, uh, one of the things I've experienced multiple times in coaching, and it's a really, really simple thing, but yet really important, and it's this. If we lose sight of the big picture, the, what we're trying to accomplish, the very basic uh, overriding theme, everything falls apart. And so every year that I coached, particularly in high school basketball, I'd have the same situation arise. And every year, around the same time, a few weeks into practice, this would happen every single year I coached. And we'd be going over plays, right? And so uh, you're teaching them basic plays on what to do and where to be, and we'd be going through these things. And I would always tell them, when I blow the whistle, I want you just to stop where you are so we can kind of talk about what we're doing and and how we're doing it. And every year we'd be going over plays, and I'd blow the whistle, and everybody would stop. And I'd have a guy with the ball, and he'd be right in front of the basket and no one around him, wide open. And I'd say, what are you doing? And he'd go, "Uh, I'm looking to pass it to, to Joe because this play, he's coming off the screen, and I'm supposed to pass it to him right there. And I'd go, but where are you on the court? And he'd go, well... I'm right here by the back. Right. So you're right in front of the basket. You're two feet away. Is there anyone on you? And you go, well, well, no. And I go, so why are you not shooting it? And they all look at me like, what? We're running a play. And I go, yeah. And why are we running the play? And they go, well, to score baskets. Yes. And so if you're wide open in front of the basket and you can make that shot and the goal is to score baskets, quit worrying about where you're passing it and shoot the ball. And I'd say this every year, every time you would see that happen, they would lose sight of the big picture. You don't have to know anything about sports. I don't want to go into big sports analogy, but any sport you play, it's this simple. You want to score more points than the opponent, right? The goal is to score baskets and to keep the other team from scoring. And so when we lose sight of that, we start to get into running plays and doing it this way and seeing it like this. We miss the big picture of what we're doing. And if we miss the big picture, you know, something silly like that in sports, we're going to have problems. But if we miss the big picture, your purpose in life and the big things, the important things, how much more so is that going to cause struggle and heartache and problems? And so if we're not seeing who we are and where we're going and the way God has made us and what that looks like, the results are going to be disastrous. And so the last few weeks, we've just been doing a short series I'm thinking about a biblical worldview, seeing things through the lens of the gospel or a a Christian worldview. And we've talked about the last couple weeks about the importance of abiding in God's word, letting God's revealed word stand over us. And we talked about context and how we don't want to twist what God's word says. We want to come to it and let it stand over us. And so last week we were talking about rightly handling the word of truth, letting what God's word says and the way it was revealed be the way we take it and the way that we look at it. And so it's important for us to be reminded of those things. But today I want us to think about if we don't have the big picture, uh, the whole story, and we don't have a handle on that, it also causes all sorts of problems. And it even causes problems for what we talked about last week of rightly handling God's word. If we don't know the big picture. And so uh, when I was in seminary, I got to teach a, a class in the Bible college, and I also taught it in a high school, a local Christian high school, just overview of the Bible. And in that class, I oftentimes would, would start with reading in Lamentations chapter 2 and 3. If you've ever just opened your Bible to Lamentations and you start reading it, it is rough. 
I mean, it's difficult. It's a difficult book. It's short, but some of the things that it says there, you start reading and you run, you go to chapter two and it's talking about people, uh, cannibalism, that they're so desperate that they've turned to cannibalism. Or you turn to chapter three and Jeremiah laments, my teeth have been knocked out with gravel. And if you just, Hey, you're doing your devotions and you just throw open to lamentations and teeth knocked out with gravel and cannibalism. And all of a sudden you're going, what is going on? And so I would read that passage and I would ask, what's happening here? What is this? And, and a lot of times, especially in the high school class, they just look at you like, I have no clue. And so if we don't have the big picture and we understand how those things fit, then it can cause all sorts of struggle. But it's even more so when we're trying to make sense out of the most important things, our worldview, the way in which we see the world. If we don't know the big picture, we'll be lost in how we interact with the world around us. And so what I want us to do today is I just want to give you, uh, we're going to do something a little different than I normally do. We're not going to pick a particular passage, although I think this is in the heart of what Jesus says in Luke 24 that I just read to you. It says he showed them how everything pertained to him. And so in my background in seminary and uh, Bible teaching masters, that's what was my whole thing was big part of that was how to present the overview of the Bible. Big picture, the whole thing. And so we've been saying if we're going to have a biblical worldview, we need to be able to read across the Bible. That is what the Bible says to different subjects and see everything it says and take the whole of that. But we also need to be able to read along the Bible. And what I mean by that is understanding the big picture. The Bible's not just a bunch of cobbled together things that are to be taken individually, but together they present the whole of what God is doing through history. And so what I'm going to do is just give you, uh, take about 15 minutes here and give you the big picture, the overview of the whole Bible. So we're going to seek to look at the, the whole of it real quickly. Obviously, we're not getting everything. This is the, what we call the, the 30,000 foot view, just the mountaintops, the big things that are there. But my hope is it helps us hold it all together so that when we open Lamentations, we understand what's going on. But bigger than that, when we think about our worldview and who we are and how we're made and where we're going and what are the issues in the world, we see those clearly in the big picture of what God is doing. And so... Let's start right at the beginning. And so I'm going to do this just overview, big picture of the Bible. And so in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and he spoke and his word became life and it became the living word in all its glory. His very words could only become wonder and beauty overflowing with his glory and his creation, a true glimpse of what God is holy like. And as he creates, God creates a creature that reflects his divine image. He makes humans, actual image bearers, with this great glory of reflecting their creator. And he calls them to care for the world he has made. And he calls them apart to walk with him, to draw near and commune. And as thinking creatures with a divine image, he gives them a great responsibility. The ability to real choices with real consequences. And they are entrusted with the ability to choose to trust their creator and his wisdom when it's time to discern what is good and what is evil or to try to make their own choices their own way. And though God knows what is best for them, this choice allows them the freedom and opportunity, the ability to freely love him and to love one another. And he knows the heartache of rebellion and what choosing their 
own way will ultimately lead, lead to. And so he warns them of such. Rebellion will lead to a cosmic unraveling as they move away from the very nature of how the world is made. And it will ultimately result in death. But man seizes autonomy, chooses rebellion. And the beautiful liberty that God granted was taken advantage of. The slithering snake whispered the lie. I am wise in my own eyes. I know what is best. The world is about me. You too can be like God. You will not surely die. Their choice meant erasing truth by remaking it in their own image. And in doing so, they destroyed that wonderful unity that they had with the creator. And as they turned away from God's advice, rebelling against him, sinning, that is ignoring him in the very world that he created. The slippery slope of twisted truth meant creation was now out of balance. The influence of evil disrupted God's design. Creation attempted to rule the creator. Short-sighted and selfish, the evil spread fully and quickly. And in that first generation came murder as evil flourished. People's thoughts turned to evil continually. They wanted to make a name for themselves and not for the God who had named them. From these earliest moments, the need became painfully clear. There was a need for a new kind of human who was capable of crushing evil, untwisting the distortions, making clear the truth. And so God promised there in the very beginning in Genesis chapter three, that rescue would come through the seed of Eve. This new kind of person would come and do just that, undo the evil that distorted everything, but it would come at a great cost. The rest of history traces this promise of the one who will come to set things right. And so God calls a man named Abram and promises that he will bring the seed through him. The renamed Abram, the restored Abraham, the blessing of the world will come miraculously through Abraham and Sarah, despite their age and the lost hope. Their treasured son, Isaac, will eventually have a son, Jacob, whom will be named by God, Israel. And his 12 sons will be the beginning of an entire nation. And it is a story in the book of Genesis that we see this play out. But it's also a familiar story that repeats throughout all history. Jacob and Isaac and Abraham, their families are a mess. Lying and cheating and stealing. They're certainly not a new kind of humanity that's going to fix anything. Yet despite all their mess, God says he will bless them. He will use them to begin his rescue plan for humanity. And at the end of Genesis, we have 70 descendants who come from Abraham. And we sit about 2,000 years before Jesus will come. And although God's promise has begun, its fulfillment is a long way off. At the start of Exodus, we're now 350 years later. These descendants have, have grown to be 2 to 3 million people. And God's covenant with Abraham is still flourishing for he had promised not only a new kind of human that would bless the world, but many descendants. And these descendants, however, seem to be have forgotten by God. They now live in slavery in Egypt. And it's here God calls a man named Moses. And Moses leads Abraham's descendants, the 12 tribes, which came from his grandson Israel, out of slavery and into the desert. There, God begins to reveal more of his character as he teaches them what he is like through this community. He makes a covenant with them and he gives them his law. And in doing so, he gives them all kinds of guidelines so that they can show the world who God is. 
Yet, much like Abraham's family, they fail spectacularly over and over again. They forget what God has done. They whine. They rebel. They don't follow the commands. And as always, God's mercy is greater. He provides a way to be near them despite their failures. He shows them how to put their trust in his provision. But at the end of this era of Moses' leadership, he gives them a reminder. As Moses calls the people together and tells them of God's faithfulness and what he's calling them to. We see this in the book of Deuteronomy. But the book ends with Moses warning them that they will fail again. We then move to the book of Joshua and God takes them into the promised land. This fulfillment of another promise he makes to Abraham, giving them this land. God places Israel, these people, smack in the middle of the world. And the land is literally a highway connecting all of the greatest nations. This is the opportunity he's giving them to be light in the darkness, an example for all nations. It's a great blessing, but it's also a high calling. But just as Abraham's family, and just like under Moses, the people continue to rebel. They continue to choose autonomy. They choose instead of communion, individuality. They ignore the creator. And so the cycle continues. God's promise of a new kind of human still seems woefully distant. They can only, things only get worse in the book of Judges. There's seven cycles of sin that we follow through the book of Judges. That's a downward spiral as things just seem to get worse and worse. And the common refrain repeated in Judges, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes, astounds and startles. The people reject God as their king. They reject his leadership. They cry out instead for an earthly king. And so God consents. And the change comes and we trace it through Samuel and Kings and Chronicles. They move to a monarchy. And for 120 years, it works out okay. As Israel is united under one king. And in doing so, they become the greatest nation on the face of the earth. We see this under Saul and David and ultimately at its height under Solomon. That lasts from 1050 to 930 BC. 120 years, this united kingdom. And although there's some bright spots for Israel as a nation, the kings are still broken people and the same problems persist. They're trusting in a man or a government while rejecting God, and that will always result in dire consequences. And so God graciously continues to remind of his promise. One day there will be a king from David's line that will finally bring this new kind of humanity that God has promised And although God keeps reiterating the promise, it's still not clear how this can happen. And so at the high point of the United Kingdom, uh, or after this high point, the kingdom is ripped into two. Man's sinfulness continues to bring destruction. And so two kingdoms emerge, one in the north, uh, Israel, and one in the south, Judah. And in that tearing apart, we see a string of terrible kings in the north. None that seek to honor God. In the south, there's a few bright spots. As there are several kings that do seek to honor God, but overwhelmingly, the south is just like the north. And so the cycle of sin continues, as in Judges, Israel and Judah are a mess. And it is in this time of the divided kingdom that God sends many of his prophets to warn Israel and Judah to turn from their rebellion, to turn from their wickedness. And God restates the promise. There is rescue coming. There is something different. 
And the prophets begin even to give a glimpse of what this rescue will look like. The coming one will not be just a descendant of Abraham, not just in the line of David, not just a king, but the king. God himself is coming. But the people continue to rebel and struggle. So the northern kingdom of Israel falls to the Assyrians in 722 B.C. They're destroyed and wiped out and scattered. The southern kingdom carries on for another 136 years before finally, despite so many warnings from God's prophets, is destroyed by the Babylonians and they lay waste to everything. It's here that Lamentations takes place. It's in the midst of this destruction that you read Jeremiah lamenting, my teeth have been knocked out with gravel. The desperation of cannibalism that is taken on in the people. And it's a result of their sin and their rebellion against God. But God is always faithful. Every word of God proves true. And so he raises up the Persians, defeat the Babylonians, and allowing the remnant of God's people to return to the land he promised. We see this in Esther and Ezra and Nehemiah. They rebuild the temple, the city of Jerusalem. And it's here the Old Testament ends with the prophet Malachi writing some 400 years before Jesus will come. And it ends with this promise. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings and you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall and you shall Tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. And although God reiterates his promise again, God's plan somehow seems lost. Yes, God has done everything he said he would do. He has been faithful. But the unfaithfulness of his people seem to continue to frustrate God's plan. And so there is silence. 400 years of silence. Silence in the sense of God is not speaking through the prophets, although he is still at work. And during that time between the Old Testament and the New Testament, in those 400 years, a young conqueror named Alexander the Great takes over the world. And he spreads the language and culture of his land. And suddenly the world has shrunk in terms of communication because of this. But then another empire will arise as the Romans come into power in 63 BC and conquer the world through the heavy hand of military might bringing a peace of sorts it's the kind of peace that if you cross it you die but if you submit then there's peace in the land but the romans as they bring this peace they also build roads they lay the foundation of travel to to shrink the world and so the stage is set easier travel easier communication It's what Paul says in Galatians 4 is the fullness of time for God to send forth his son. And so he does. The world is ready for the promise to be fulfilled. And so the New Testament opens with the Gospels announcing the birth of the promised Savior. The rescuer arrives from the promise to Abraham, from the line of David. He has arrived to defeat evil, to restore humanity, to restore communion. He is divinity incarnate he loves people perfectly he lays himself aside he forsakes evil he speaks only truth he walks humbly in perfect submission to god in every way loving and caring for all those around him he heals the sick he cares for those in need he is known as a friend to the outcasts and he does all this perfectly 
loving in the face of hate, kindness in response to anger, this new humanity begins to threaten. Those in power are unnerved. They want him dead. And so instead of choosing self, he chooses his people and he submits. He lays down his life and in due and in so doing, he takes on the sin of the world. Those who will put their faith in him will find their sin erased and he pays for it all. Jesus overcomes evil with good. He destroys the power of sin and death by becoming sin for us. He takes the punishment that we deserve. He bears the wrath of God on our behalf and he opens the way to perfect communion, ultimate relationship, the relationship with God we were designed for in that garden. The reunion is sweet as people can now be the very dwelling place of God himself. Now we are the new kind of people, not relying on power, but on his, his grace through faith blesses the world. His grace through faith saves us. His grace through faith makes us new. And so the rest of the New Testament acts in the epistles tell of the spread of this good news. An explanation of how Jesus has changed all of history and how it now shapes our lives. Transferring our trust from what we do to him and what he's done. Bringing grace into our lives that remakes us in his very image. We now get to live in this time where God is at work in this way. Bringing about his restoration of all things. We get to live in step with him in this new kind of humanity. Showing the world that it only comes through what he is doing and has done for us. It's not through putting our trust in earthly systems of kings. It's through God's care. It's not by seizing autonomy. It's by laying it down to follow him. So the story ends with something that's still future. As God inspires the, the revelation to John that shows that Jesus is coming again. And when he does, the fullness of this new humanity and community will overwhelm all of creation, setting everything in its right place. And when he does, it will be with such power and glory that all that has come before we will see clearly is for our good and for God's glory. And so you have a brief biblical theology, the big picture. This is what the story is about. This is who we are and what our need is and how God has come to address it for us in Jesus. And so if we are to see the world as it is, to truly grow up into a worldview that is rooted in the truth of God's word and how he's revealed himself, we have to see the whole. We have to see the, the big picture. And the whole is about God and his unrelenting grace in pursuit of his creation, of those that are created in his image. The whole is about how he repeatedly tried, uh, how we have repeatedly tried to live our lives and fix the problems and do all of it ourselves. And we do this again and again, and it doesn't work. And so we continually need to be reminded that the key is about glorifying him and what he's done and trusting him and who he is. And now who we are in him. We see this all the way throughout history. That as we miss that, the results are disastrous. The same cycle of not trusting God and trusting ourselves with Abraham's family and under Moses and in Israel and in Judges and in Josh, all of these eras over and over again. The same impulse going back to the very beginning lives in us. The desire to seize autonomy and define what is good for ourselves. 
So here's what I want us to consider for just a moment when we think about big picture of our worldview and how we operate in it. How having the framework of where we came from and why we're here and what are the struggles and the problems and where we're going, how does that help navigate the world around us? How does it inform the very way we see our world? We live in a a strange time in a lot of ways. There's so much division and struggle ideological divide in our country. And I said this the very first week we started as we were talking about worldview. What happens in times like this, especially in an election year, especially in an election year stacked on top of a global pandemic, we turn our focus to the challenges in front of us and we often identify the challenges that we see right in front of us as the problem. This is the problem. And when we misidentify what the problem is, then we turn to things like government or political ideology or who the next president is going to be. Now, there's nothing wrong with being invested in those things. In fact, as believers, we're called to care for our community, the people we live with. God has established and given government for our good. And so we are called to work for and in our governmental systems that God's given us for the good of all people. We're called to pray for our leaders. We're called to seek to make wise choices based on what God has revealed to us in our word. So please don't hear me. I'm not saying don't do those things. That is all true. But the temptation in these times come where we turn like the guys on my basketball team. And we start to go, what I'm supposed to pass it over there. And we've missed the big picture. We start to lose sight of what God is doing and what God says is the problem and how he alone has answered it. The temptation is not to see people, but to grow cold and see ideological divides rather than seeing people that are made in God's image who have been separated from him by their sin and desperately need the redemption that is only offered in Jesus and nothing else. And when we miss that and we see the problems of the world as as stemming from the wrong economic policy or the wrong Supreme Court justices or the wrong view of the Constitution or the wrong president. Those are not the root of the problem. Those are symptoms of the root of the problem and the root of the problem is sin. And our problems all lie at deciding, deciding to seize autonomy to choose to define for ourselves the difference between good and evil. And the root is we're looking to the creation for the answers that only the creator can give. And when we miss that as true, we identify something else as the problem. And when we look for that and we misidentify it, and then we look for something else as the answer. Alistair McGrath, who's an incredible theologian and apologist, said that when we... When the idea of God is gone in society, society will transcendentalize something else. So the, some other concept in order to appear morally and spiritually superior. We see this today on every side of the political divide, each identifying something as the answer. And sadly, what happens for, for many Americans, we believe this lie. And even more sadly... Christians who are called to something far greater do the exact same thing. We transcendentalize the Supreme Court. 
or the military or the constitution or the president. But when you read through God's revelation to us in his word and you read through the history of the nations through time, you see the same issues repeating over and over again. Whenever the answer becomes the king, we want to be like the other nations, they say to Samuel. Give us a king so we can be like everyone else. When the answer becomes the government, when the answer becomes the president, we've embraced a lie that does not speak to the deepest need. And that in turn leads to deep division. That leads to anxiety and worry. That leads to people not seeing others as people. And so if we follow all the way through a biblical theology, there is only one answer. And there's only one king. And there's only one way things will be set right. And he's not coming by an election. The answer is the cross of Jesus and what he's done for us. So what do we do? Does that mean you throw your hands up and go, man, government is a mess and they'll never be able to do it. So I just will passively not be involved. No. Do not misapply God's sovereignty to justify being apathetic. It's not what we do. But we do trust that Jesus is the answer and that he has come and defeated sin and evil and he has done it. And he is the king and he is ruling and reigning over every square inch of the entire cosmos, all of it. And nothing is outside of his control. Nothing can ultimately frustrate his plans. We see that real change comes from the movement of the Holy Spirit as God's people seek him and love those around them. Real change doesn't come from who gets elected, no matter what a political pundit tells you. And so hear God's word as first Peter, as Peter writes in first Peter chapter two, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul, but keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We continue to entrust ourselves to our great king that has done everything that we cannot do. Our allegiance is to Jesus and him alone. And so we recognize the good laws and good governance are needed, but we recognize that they cannot change people's heart. Only God can do that. And so our job is to point to him in everything because he alone is the answer. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the glorious truth that you have done for us what we could never do for ourselves. We thank you that you loved us so much to come and to do that that you've given us all these markers and signs that point us ahead to you. And, and now we get to live in the time where you have come and you have defeated sin and evil, that you now live in and with us through the gift of the Holy Spirit, all because of what Jesus has done. Give us eyes to see you in all things. I pray that we would be people, especially during the season in this time that are overwhelmed by your grace to us, that we would be agents of that to those around us 
that we would speak truth and do it boldly, but we would also do it with great humility that reminds people of what you have done and who you are. We confess we can't do any of that on our own, and so we pray that you would just uh, strengthen our faith, that you remind us uh, of your goodness in every area of our life, and we pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.